Hi, this is Scott Cerulli, and this is Coffee Talk. Hello, and welcome again to the official podcast of the Guitar Department at Berklee College of Music. My name's Ian, and today we've got another episode of Coffee Talk for you. This week, we're joined by guitar professor Scott Cerulli. Scott's a renowned rock and funk guitarist with three albums under his belt as a band leader. He's also played with all kinds of folks from Nile Rodgers, The Temptations, Steve Gadd, Guthrie Govan, and many others. As always, a lot of this content will also be available on YouTube, and we have a ton of other great content on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, so give us a like and a subscribe on whatever platform you use. Here's our interview with Scott Teruli. Hi, everyone. I'm Kim Perlack, and welcome to another Coffee Talk. Um, we're here, uh, as usual, with our assistant chair of the guitar department, Cheryl Bailey. Hey, Cheryl. Hey, everybody. And today I do have my Berkeley Guitar Department official mug. Woohoo! Yeah, <laughs> that's great. And our senior coordinator, Ian Steed, is here, as usual. Hey, Ian. Hey, y'all. How's it going? And uh, we're really happy to have uh, Professor Scott Teruli as our guest today. Hey, Scott. How you doing? It's good to see you. It's great to see you. It's great to see all of you, even virtually. It's been <laughs> hard the past few years not bumping into everybody you normally bump into. I know. That's the best part about this is really like, you know, honestly recreating our office hang yes. around the coffee maker. So whether that's you right. it or not. Yep. Um, oh, and Scott, you have your coffee mug, too. Um, we made these for the faculty, like right before the pandemic. And so... Um, Scott, what do you have in there? Do you have coffee in there? I do. Um, it's nothing special today. It's uh, it's just a, a, an Italian roast Starbucks blend that I make here at home. It wasn't very adventurous. It was on sale, <laughs> <laughs> but it's good. I make, I like it a little darker, you know, like <laughs> a little heavier. I like a, a kind of rich, not bitter taste. So um, this this does the trick. But I'm always on the, you know, that one cool thing about the show is you see what people are drinking and you buy, maybe, maybe I'll go buy that and check it out. <laughs> so um, is it a flavor thing for you? Is it the caffeine? Is it a mixture? Like, That's a really good, yeah, it's a mixture. Um, it's definitely the taste, but I don't know if we've all had these experiences, you know, especially in our 20s when we got to shed eight hours a day. <laughs> I just had to have something. So it would just be coffee pot after coffee pot. I just needed something while I'm focusing. So um, it's a bit habitual, um, but um, I do love the flavor. Like I won't drink bad coffee just, you know, for the sake of drinking coffee. Like if there's no good coffee around, I'll just do without. <laughs> That's interesting. So um, do you put anything in it or is it black? Sometimes it's black. Um, sometimes just some milk. Uh, we have oat milk here at home. So that's what's in mine today. Nice. So I love it, actually. Do you ever, so you never get into the bad coffee. Like, I totally understand how you feel, but there's every once in a while when I'm like at a diner or like at a cabin or something, I'll drink okay. the bad coffee just because of the experience. It kind of feels like the brown water is kind of part of the whole vibe. Do you ever do that or are you just like, no, I won't let it in? No, I won't. Yeah, um, I, you got me the diner one. I've I've been definitely been guilty. Is, is you know just pour it and 
uh, I have a joke. It's like always disappointing because you're like, oh, it's going to be great this time. You know, right. it's going to be part of this thing. And after it's like eh, the aftertaste, the, but I understand what you mean about part of the experience. It's not really coffee, I guess, at that point, I guess that's right. where it, it gels with you. It's not, I don't think of that as coffee. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's great. Um, so Scott, one of the things that a lot of people want to know about is first days at Berkeley. Um, and what, what were your first days like? Do you, I mean, and you've had multiple different first days um, as a student and then as like a faculty at, in different capacities. So it could be any of them, but if there's something that stands out about one of your first days or a couple of them. Well, uh, my first days for college were at UMass Dartmouth and that was exciting because I was 18 mm -hmm. and I was uh, a composition student. Um, but I did do the five week program at Berkeley, and that was also really exciting. That actually really changed my life um, to be around like people. Um, now, the first days teaching are really kind of funny. Um, it's a great story. I love to tell it. Um, I was just gigging around with different players, and some of them happened to teach at Berkeley. So Robin Stone was one of them I was doing some duo gigs with. And she was just so cool. So I was like, this was fun. Let's do this again. And Robin actually said, you know, have you ever thought of teaching at Berkeley? And I'm thinking I'm not even allowed to walk past Berkeley. You know, I'm like, no, 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 no. So I actually I owe the first days to Robin Stone and I'm sure she remembers it. She actually set up an interview with Larry Bayonne and then called me to tell me Monday at one, you're meeting with Larry Bayonne. And um, and I'm grateful for her doing that because. Um, really at the time I was in my twenties and I was thinking, oh, I can't do this. I'm going to say no. I'm, you know, imposter syndrome to the end degree. So I met with Larry and Rick and we had a great conversation and, um, the, so I did the guitar sessions, but I get a call from Larry and this is back with landlines. You know, you pick up the phone and he's like, it's like September, the first week of September. He goes, Scott, uh, I'd like to teach here. I'm thinking, isn't there more summer programs? He goes, no. You know, you know, how'd you like to? And so I'm, I think I was at my mom's house and uh, he said, what are you doing today? I said, nothing. I, I probably was. <laughs> and he said, why don't you come down and I'll take you around. And it, it could have, couldn't have been a nicer experience. So I come on campus and back then you had to go to each building to sign papers. And then he bought me pizza. <laughs> and so this is the funny part about the first days is I didn't go to Berkeley. Um, and I go, when does the semester start? He says in, in two days. So I'm like, uh, okay, I, this is not the time to look like you don't know what you're doing. So I said, Larry, what do you want me to teach? He goes, just teach you. You know, I've heard you play. I've saw, I've seen you with students just teach what you, and that was so like really strange for me. So my first days, um, actually I, I would say the first few semesters, I really struggled you know, I was really terrified. I was probably a little overprepared. I was prepared for all of my students to be way above my level. And so I had a lot of, I walked in with a lot of misconceptions. And um, I started to get the hang of it. And, um, you know, I owe a lot to Larry, of course, to Robin Stone. And, you know, Larry and Rick were very supportive, you know. And um, I think early on, I, I, like right now I'm, I'm apt to come to any, any three of you and go, look, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing here. Or 
can you help me with this? You know, I don't mind asking the silly question. Um, but back then it was kind of like if I had faculty to confide in, I could go, what's this harmonic major scale? Is that a typo? Like, you know, and so you go, I go home and shed it like mad. And um, so, but that was kind of the thing, like secretly feeling like I didn't belong there. Maybe they just needed a, a warm body, you know, all these self-doubt things that maybe other people feel. Um, but yeah, the first days were uh, both extremely exciting and extremely terrifying because I said, it's going to be any moment that everybody's going to find out I'm, I'm an imposter, you know, I'm going to play something bad. Um, you know, of course they, they want us to do the show. So they, within the first two weeks, they said, do a show at the performance center. And uh, boy, was that, that was probably the most terrifying because you know, playing my music in front of people and I was really intimidated. So I would say both ends of the spectrum, the first days were, amazing and they were also pretty terrifying i really love that in in i wrote down a lot of things that you've said so far that i mean we could talk now for a year i think but everything you said is so important um the honesty of it is so important and i just think i want to go through a few of these things that i think we've heard so much um from different students one of them was a conversation I just had coming in with one of our work study students, who's an incredible player and composer. And it's evident though, that he doesn't believe that. You know, like when I hear him play, I just said that to him, I said, your, your piece that you wrote for our class is incredible. And he said, thank you. And I said, you don't believe that, do you? And he said, well, I don't know. And another student said, we can tell you don't believe it the way you say it. Right. Yes. And um, and so I think what you said about um, just now about how, you know, you had this conversation with Larry and he said, come here and teach you. Yes. Which is what we say to everybody. I mean, obviously, like in Larry's footsteps. Right. That's what Cheryl and I say. And I have no doubt that when he heard you and when Robin heard you, they knew that you were a master of your style, that you had the ability to be a master teacher as well, which is a separate thing and connected, but also like its own beautiful thing. You're not just like saying what you do, like it's you, you're actually like teaching students, right? So those are two levels of mastery. And it was hard for you to see that in yourself. And I think all of us go through that if we're really honest. Um, do you have a sense now looking back of what they did see in you? And maybe it's something similar to what you see in younger players that they might not see in themselves. And could you put your finger on a couple of those things? Um, not in the same order you asked. I do see this in students. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know, I struggled with it even just on the scene. You know, you go out and I was like 24 playing, you know, um, with people that I felt were way out of my league at, at jazz clubs or whatever. Um, and if, and, you know, I think what we have to watch for is like with students, um, is to be sincere in what we say, because they could start feeling like you're just patronizing them. That's the feeling I had. Like if somebody's like, no, you're great. And, um, so going back then, uh, I could definitely see, I could, I could follow the growth pattern actually of my own personal growth and what may, made me become a better teacher or communicator. And 
what you ultimately have to decide is, you know, let's just start at one place. You're the most perfect you in the universe. Like, and you are where you are now, not where you were a, a year ago or not where you're going to be in two months, even, or three years. So, um, you can't t- just tell somebody these things like you're on a journey, da, da, da. You know, you, you start to throw cliches at people. Um, but I do have a lot of students that take for granted their talents, like what you're saying, the student not actually believing it. Um, so the, the way that I address this, the, the, what, what makes me, what, where I've become a better mentor is understanding the process because nothing came easy for me at all. I mean, I had to practice 10 times harder than everybody else. I felt like to get the same results. I also had to beat mental obstacles. Like you're talking, like you were asking me. So what I've done is we're going to learn the fundamentals, but what's going on in your harmony class? What ear training are you in? And then let's start applying that to the instrument. But how do you hear this? So I'll play a note out of nowhere. I don't know what note that is. I don't care. How does that note function? And right now there's not a wrong answer, is there? Oh, I I hear it as the five. So what key are you in? So you're hearing the key of this. So this is a small step in, um, you know, letting go and trusting yourself. You know, if you could, I still have battle with self-doubt and imposter syndrome sometimes, but the second somebody can say something, it's not a wrong answer. But it has to be true. So if I hear, if I play a C and they say that I hear it as a five, well, what key are you in? Well, if I hear it as a five, I'm in the key of F. I'm like, you're just hearing the key of F right now. Then It's not a wrong answer. There's a success, you know, and then I'm like, and then I'll play the chord. I'm like, is that what you're hearing? Yeah. So then we go from there. So now we're kind of doing ear training backwards with harmony. Well, how can I, you know, I, I can't play on the F chord for an hour. Well, you can. What do you do in harmony? Well, we learn this, 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 this. Well, why is that apart from what you're doing on the fretboard? So what I try to do is is uh, kind of invite people to discover on their own. Of course, I'll give examples. But my favorite line a student says is, so can I do this then? And of course you can. Now, then they come back with these amazing ideas. And I still hear, oh, my God, I can't believe you like it. I thought I did it wrong. I thought it was the stupidest thing. And, you know, I um, so, you know, it just, you know, even in high school is a, is a tough era for me. Right. You know, you wear, you wear the wrong band concert T-shirt and people bully you. So it's hard enough to live life in the face of others. Now, you know, go to one of the top music schools and I could play this way and be accepted if I learned just the licks of these great players. Um, and the thing for me over time has been that's what I used to do because I was afraid of people wouldn't like my identity deep inside. Right. So, for example, when I was touring stuff, I was kind of a Robin Ford clone, Steve Lukather and Charlie Parker. And I could blaze through the stuff and I would be accepted. But I really wasn't being honest. You know, um, and there's people that do that that I love. I love when other people do it because it sounds amazing and people can be so good at it. Um, So I think this is a long answer to your question, but I really think part of the process is not being afraid to look in the mirror um, and kind of gaining the courage to go. 
it sounds like I hear this, but other people are, are not going to dig it. Or sometimes there's, they'll say, yeah, this is the chord to the song. Oh, that's a tasty chord that, that broke things up. That's a nice compositional choice. Yeah, but how do I explain it? Like, how do I analyze it? And then I point out that, you know, the French impressionists across the board, Debussy was saying that to people. Well, why did you go to this key? Because it sounds good. And that was courageous, you know. And uh, even the painters, you know, Corbet, Manet, well, Paul Cezanne brought it further. But you look at the courage that these painters had and the musicians had in that era. And I say, look, we're we're far from that. So um, as long as you're doing it with intention, it's legitimate. Intention's a big word. You can't just play anything, you know, if you heard it that way. And I find that if people become more and more comfortable with their decisions, either in the moment or they become compositionally or building a phrase, if they become confident in that, things start to change, I think, you know, because right now I think what it is, is I need to do X, Y, and Z to be accepted. And I felt that. And I still struggle with it. I really struggle with it on gigs. Sometimes I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to bend any notes. I'm not going to go for the cheap Hendrix. You know, I have a lot of energy and get the crowd screaming. I'm going to see if I could do this, you know, um, with no distortion, with rhythm, with melodic statements. And I'm going to really kind of not fall back on that stuff and then not be upset if people don't applaud after. So I'm starting to let it go. So I'm on that journey still. Uh, but I'm far along. I've come a long way. I think it's kind of remarkable that you were not in the room with Cheryl and I in our first cup of coffee this morning because we were having this conversation, a very similar conversation to it. So Cheryl, I want to know what you're thinking in a minute. Um, I just want to highlight, Scott, that a couple things that I love that you said. One, one is that... Um, just because you're doing something really valid in your music and you recognize it doesn't mean that you're not still on this path of filling in gaps and building your foundation and practicing really hard and working on it. And just because you're working really hard on developing yourself also doesn't mean that you don't have something to say. And I think that um, if great. you ask students, right, you ask so many people, young people, like, what is your goal? And it's like, I want to develop my own unique sound. I want to play my music. But then what happens in context is often what you described. It's like kind of taking all of this stuff that is acceptable or expected and almost wearing it like a, like a protective suit of armor or something and being afraid to really do what you say you, you want to do because that, that's a, you know, there's a vulnerability there and there's a, um, also getting to know yourself in a deeper way, maybe that, that is hard to do. And then how do you incorporate all these things? So I think it's so valuable that you outlined your thought process through all of this. Um, and then the last thing I want to say that I would like to come back to and back to is I've always loved about your musicianship that you incorporate philosophy and composition and your knowledge of art history and music history in styles that are not yours, that people would associate with your act, with your playing. Right. That you learned from the impressionists in both music and art, and that you learn um, from the philosophers and you can really have a conversation like that. And you study composition in all different styles. And I think 
that comes up a ton because students are like, oh my gosh, I have 20 hours of credits. Do I really need this class from this other department? Why am I studying music history in this way? Why am I studying theory and ear training if I'm not going to use it, quote unquote? And what I love about your teaching is you're just saying through your own experience, like, well, of course you're going to use it. If only an example, right? And how would you explore different sounds if you don't hear different sounds? And, and I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. And then obviously we can come back to it as much as you'd like, but. Sure. I mean, uh, the philosophy is interesting. In, in, in college, I had to take an elective. It was rhetoric. And the teacher was great. Uh, Ray Dumont. I'll never forget him. He was great. And we studied the art of, you know, argument, uh, not an argument, but, you know, uh, understanding the meaning of words. And I found that important. So since day one, I told students, if they have a rhetoric class here, take it because you're going to need the protection in the music business, you know, uh, of, of cutting through what people are presenting you. What are they really saying? Right. This is going to protect you as a, as an artist. And then I wanted to go back to it. So I contacted this, this guy, Greg Sadler. I just was watching his videos because he would explain these books that I didn't understand. And I ended up studying with him. And I said, I want to do rhetoric. I want to brush up on rhetoric. So we started doing Aristotle's rhetoric and work through it. And what I found out was I learned way more than I thought I was going to learn. And so I became a bit of an Aristotelian in the sense that I understand how, how emotions work. Right. Um, so I can address why I got angry about something or if I was angry at the right person to the right degree, you know, um, and I could really, you know, what made you mad about that? And that helped me grow, but it also helped me be kind of compassionate. It's kind of like I can address why other people get angry. Uh, well, this person is obviously taking something I said to be contemptuous, meaning yeah, you don't matter. Or like cutting someone in line makes us mad because they're kind of telling you, you don't matter. So that stuff starts. And then just with a lot of the other writers, um, especially the ones that, that wrote about the emotions, you know, learning what these words actually really meant and, um, and using them. And, um, you know, somehow studying that stuff brought out a different creativity in me because it's different thinking, you know, and it's not one specific thinker with me. I, I only have a handful because um, like music, like we can't know every album, right? We can't know every artist. Um, and so the philosophy part's really important and I use it, especially in that class. Um, I actually use the uh, Aristotle stuff in uh, the, the um, fifth semester, um, the, the recital, the recital lab. I use it. The, I, I dedicate the first two classes to um, how to comment or critique because the first years I did that class, anybody have comments for so-and-so? It was awesome. Come on, everyone. We got to use our brains. We need to be articulate. And uh, I said, well, we're going to put these tools up there. Okay. What are some things you can judge at? Oh, okay. Intonation. Great. Da, da, da. But now we need to sub is intonation always a deal breaker. And the students are like, yeah, of course. I'm like, okay, we're watching Joan Jett in 1978 at CBGB's and she's on fire and the crowd's going bananas. She's sweating and, and like the band's killing it, but her B string's a little flat. Are you going to say, 
And so then they start to think, oh, and then what is the intention? You know, like, so we'll have like a lot of metal students will we'll do the Bach and they'll palm mute it and speed pick it. And I used to get angry when people would criticize them for it because they're not playing it correctly. Where's the dynamics? Where's the, and it shouldn't be metronomic. And I said, well, that wasn't their point. They didn't, they're not practicing the Bach for that reason. So what I do is I have each student get up and say, my name is so-and-so I'm about to perform this. And this is why I chose it and give a little background. So we as an audience know what the intention is. So if they have intention, we want to judge them based on their intention, not on what it should have been in somebody else's eyes. So I think that's kind of what I have to say about the philosophy is it really, I think it's really helped the students because now they're talking a lot, you know, now they'll give really solid feedback and it's not just me and they start to make a community. So that's, I think that's one of the things that I love sharing and they're usually cool about it. You know, you know, they, they always, like you said, I just want, I should only be, you know, studying, you know, guitar classes. Well, yeah, the other classes are important. Art history is important. I'm into visual art, but you have to be honest with yourself what art excites you and why. It could be very dark art, like the Edward Munch or, you know, the human condition. And and I tend to like the dark stuff. I like the, the people in pain. And look, don't be afraid of that. And maybe that's saying something about what's coming out in your music or what's coming out. Mechanics are one thing, you know, and they're very important. And, um, but I always go back to, you know, people do the badge of honor. Well, I don't go to Berkeley, I'm self-taught. And my news for them is every single person on the planet is self-taught, everyone. Because I don't care if you got a guitar and looked at YouTube videos, learned some chords, listened to a million albums, copied the riffs, you're still processing this and putting this into something. And that's the leap that you have to take. So no matter if somebody sits in the same room with you and shows you proper technique, the scales, um, you in the end have to put it together and speak with it. I can't do that. None of, nobody here could do that for a student. So everybody's self-taught. Although I guess if you were born in a bubble and given an instrument and made sounds with it, that would be totally self-taught. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, you know, there's just kind of back to the students thinking that I see, it's kind of like they, they're battling with all of this stuff and I battle with it. I practice all the time and the more, the older I get, the more fundamental stuff I work on, but they battle with the, is this legitimate? Is somebody going to call me out on, on writing with this chord? Um, I like to use the scale, but they say this is kind of a jazz scale. Will people think I'm being jazzy? Will people think, you know, what will people think? And I think um, it's just, uh, it's kind of addressing things, but not super direct. And um, I'm, I want the student to work hard but I want to leave room for them not being afraid to like something else. So yes, um, I studied a lot of string quartets the last few years. I like bar talk. I love the string quartets. I don't know what he's up to. I, I think I want to start, start studying with someone because I buy the recordings. I listen and I pick apart and read. And then I start to get ideas when I pick up the instrument, like, and now when I'm writing, I'm writing a whole series of new stuff. Now when I'm writing, I'm actually saying, I don't know what pitch set this is now. I have no idea. It's just what I'm hearing. I can't analyze this. And I have to take my own advice and go, um, some people may say this is garbage and I've got to be okay with that. Because people are used to hearing me do one thing, right? I'm known for a certain kind of like, you know, 
R&B, jazz, no, not, well, rock, R&B, um, with kind of a jazz sensibility because some of my big influences were Big Al, uh, Bill Evans, Herbie Hancock, um, actually, you know, Jim Hall. I mean, it doesn't end. I'm really fi- a big fan of a lot of these people. And the process of jazz is there where I'm making an, music in real time. Stylistically, I can pull off a gig, but I, you know, I'm not, I don't want to insult jazz players and say, I'm a jazzer, you know? Um, but I think all this stuff that you said that you pointed out that I do pour in, I'm starting to feel a little bit more like, even at my, you know, at an older age, you know, not my twenties. Um, I'm like, well, I think na- just now you're starting to s- discover yourself, Scott. And um, okay. It's okay to run with this. It's okay. You know, and then bringing it to musicians. I'm sure all of you have brought your music to musicians at some point. That's probably the scariest because they might go, I don't know about this Truly guy. I mean, what the hell is this? You know? Um, so yeah, I maybe I went off topic a bit, but I do um and I I love being around Berkeley because I can pull someone aside like Cheryl or you and 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 go. Uh, you know, like, hey, Kim, uh, what's what's this? What's this about? Or, you know, I think I was asking you about the WC because I was so frustrated because right. you, you the it's meant for piano, but I want it to sound good on guitar, but there's not enough notes on the guitar. And then, you know, Kim, what do you know about this? And, you know, or Fuse, what do you know about that? Or what do you think about this? And um, or some of the great blues players like what? what's this record that so-and-so like, you know, what would you recommend for this kind of thing? And I'm so lucky. Um, at first going back, I wanted to fit in. Now it's not fitting in. It's, you know, it's respecting what other people do and being excited about it instead of taking a, uh, people get angry. They, uh, they get envious, not jealous. We use that word wrong. So they get envious. Like, you know, let's say I was trying to be a, a jazz player and Cheryl's like one of the greats. And, uh, you know, the young me would be like, well, you know, well, she just did this, just this. And she, you know, you start to try to discount the other players. But now it's like, this is an opportunity to like learn something or, you know, it's provided that the person's not standoffish that you approach, you know, like you come up to Cheryl at a club and she'd be cool because I know Cheryl hey, you know, maybe can we chat chat sometime about like, you know, whatever, because it's something that I, I can learn from, but I don't necessarily need to, I just need to be me, you know, and that is hard. I don't know how, how you said you were talking to Cheryl earlier about it. It's really hard. It's, you know. It, it, yeah, it is yeah. really hard. Um, you know, it's funny that you mentioned Debussy because famously he said when they, someone asked him about his compositional process, he said, I use all the notes I want and I leave out the ones I don't. And I think that's how it works on the guitar, right? And that's... I got to write that down. <laughs> but do you have... That's a paraphrase but uh, of a famous quote that's gotten kicked around. Um, and I think I actually heard it when a dear friend of mine was arranging Debussy for guitar about 20 years ago when we were hanging out. Um, so... Um, you know, I think that having a precedent, like we've talked about this in other interviews recently too, like knowing that someone went through this, like who maybe is from a totally different field, like that's an opportunity when you study art and music history, you see like, 
wow, you know, Debussy was having these conversations, like Berg and Weber and, and their teacher Schoenberg were having these conversations, like, is tone a structural element? Do you need right. to have a key center? You know, and it's like, wow, like at different schools, hundreds of years ago, people were having these conversations. You're not alone in the world when you think about it. Um, and I just want to point out that, like, there somewhere on this campus today are people saying, like, why do I have to listen to Bartok string quartets? And why do I have to study harmony for your training for or, you know, some of these classes that they, I'm a rock guitar player. Why do I need that? And if that question came to you, if someone came in the lesson and said that to you, what would you say in a nutshell? Like, what's your nutshell answer? Uh, me and nutshell answer? Are you crazy? Yeah, just give it a go. <laughs> give it a go. You know, we've got a oh. whole pot of coffee. You can come back. Yeah. The, um, actually, that does happen a lot. Mm-hmm. And what I usually point out is it's well, today I would say, look, it's 2021, mm-hmm. you know, perhaps in the 60s, you'd have to choose a camp. I'm a rock and roll guitarist because the Beatles were on. I'm a jazz guitarist. I'm a classical guitarist. I said, but we're in a time that, you know, people started putting styles together. Like Miles Davis all of a sudden went completely in left field. People hated him for it. You know, the 70s stuff, which I love, like the Fillmore, there's it's it's of the moment. It's intentional. Everything's intentional and it's for a reason. So I I'll say um, you sometimes what I'll do is I'll play something. That came of that intentionally and they'll go, well, that was cool. What was that? And if I happen to have the the manuscript paper with me or the, the, the piece, I'll circle something. I'll go, I got that from this. You notice how the two parts are moving apart or what if you practice your scales like that? I don't know. And they'll go interesting. And they'll go kind of practice it. And then sometimes they'll, they'll send me an email saying, what was that thing you showed me? What was it? Who was the composer? And so it's kind of like, I do get that. It's like, but I want to do this. Why do I have to like do mixed styles? And I said, well, you know, you should take that very seriously because here you are learning how to play. Do you want to tour? I'd love to tour. Well, if Justin Timberlake called, would you say yes? Yeah. And I'm like, and you want to be ready for it. If that's one of your goals, you know. Um, and then the other thing I said, well, then we have to address why you're here. Because you are at a very musically diverse school. You, the Indian ensemble here is absolutely stunning. I don't know if anybody's heard it. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And so, you know, um, I, you know, I send, I send, um, I send notes every once in a while. I think the, the well, what's the woman's name? I'm forgetting, but she's amazing. And I send her notes every once in a while going like, I, you know, is there some kind of list? Cause I need to know when to come hear this. And I tell my students, you know, go check this out. You know, a lot of them don't. And, you know, I you, you, you can't force them because, look, if you told me when I was 18, I'd go, no, man, where's the Satriani? Where's the and I love Satriani, all these players still. But I was very like this. But I guess the answer is kind of like, well, if I can demonstrate it in my playing and catch their attention. You know, then now they're they're being inquisitive. I'm not jamming it down the throat. And if it goes by them or if they if they ask for advice, I'll throw that in there and I'll say, look, your path is going to be different. All of ours are. If you lined all the Berkeley faculty up, you wouldn't get the same story. And I, I say to them, it turns out that's a good thing. Right. You know, so um, I just think 
I always say it would be a shame for you to come to Berkeley and not use the resources Berkeley has to offer because we're really giving a lot of um, food for thought for you as a, as a musician. And I, and I say, whatever you work on and listen to, it comes out in the wash as you, you know, there's That's probably, right. yeah, you know, it's like go hear uh, somebody play a different style of guitar a lot. You don't have to become that. You don't even have to try it, but somewhere in your head, you might be sitting down one time and figure out a way to make that sound in your own way. Um, I think that's important. So yeah, yeah. I definitely, yeah. And, and, you know, I, I, I do say, I, th I think there's a philosophy minor at Berkeley and I'm not sure what their curriculum is, but I always encourage them to take a couple. Mm -hmm. I say, you should actually take a couple of those and it'll sharpen your thinking and communicating skills. You know, it'll sharpen, you know, you might go off on the deep end and read someone and you've had the resource of studying and understanding the thought and you could go, well, I don't so much agree with this, but I did learn this and I never thought of it that way. And you make it your own, you know, unless you want to really make a life pursuit of it. So um, that was a great question because I do get that a lot. Like I'm a metal guitarist. Why do I have to? Mm -hmm. and I go, well, you know, it's 2021. You could be anything you want, you know I mean? But you're here. Right. And why limit your foundation? Yeah. You can always be whatever kind of player you want, but you might have something a little different than the other ones, the other players that do what you do, you know, and then that kind of, I mean, that these are things that I respond to, you know, are you, are, you know, I hate when people talk about the best, there's no best, but you know, maybe you could be a better you. That's right. You know, so you know, Cheryl and Ian, at different times, I'm watching your reactions to this, and I know you want to dig into something. So, Cheryl, why don't you jump in there, and what do you want to dig into first? Well, first, I wanted to say, I see what Larry and Rick saw in you when they met you. So, you you, you got the gig. <laughs> oh, you're, you're so kind. <laughs> no, but, you know, there, there's so many things that you you're just like blazing on so many <laughs> on all burners. Right. So there's so many things I, I wanted to ask you about and talk about, but um, you know, I, I know this about you as a person and your generosity and your kindness and your intuitiveness and that that is how you connect with students. Right. Um, and it's interesting to me about how you're very open about you, what you were afraid of, but that you're instead of putting on a suit of armor about that, you actually embraced that and and started to study things that you were curious about because you had to start as a beginner. You know, whether that's a musical idea or like, hey, I want to study bar talk. Like, I don't know what that is. Like, there's a there's you've when you're in that state, you're really embracing that fear of like, wow, I'm a beginner. And, and so that's a beautiful thing about you as a person and that you share that with your students because in this thing of, we were talking about philosophy, which I've talked with you many times about, um, but we're talking about art or we're talking about studying counterpoint from, this, these are universal things. You know, actually I was talking to, um, to Martin Taylor the other day and he was saying, he just read this article that said, London's done. There's no good food. There's too many foreigners. And there's, and he said that was written in 1706, right? You know, it's the same stuff people, there's nowhere to go. There's nothing to say, you know, like that, that universality of humanity, the humanity of it 
is what continues, right? And so a great melody is a great melody. And I mean, I think about this in just playing jazz standards, like any any great tune or melody that has, it's like got meat on its bones. You could play it as a bossa, you could play it as a swing, you could play it as a ballad, you could play it as a rock tune. You could, you know what I mean? Like it, the substance is there and substance is universal and eternal, really. Right. Yeah. I, I really love what you're talking about there, about just you're facing your fear fearlessly by, <laughs> oh, you know, just saying, yeah, I I got to learn about this or what you're saying, like looking in the mirror. That is the hardest thing to do. But that is the necessary step to get to these levels of mastery. And then in that level of mastery, we keep finding that we're a beginner again. It just gets worse. And, and <laughs> The tagline I say to students is, and if you're lucky, it won't end. You know, if you're lucky, you know, I said, never be self-abusive. There's a line, you know, because uh, I don't want to, uh, you know, um, I don't want to. I don't want people to start getting the, in the habit of beating themselves up for the, the shortcomings. I mean, look, at the end of the day, each one of us are the only people on the planet that have heard everything we've played right so i tell students i go you think you didn't play good because maybe you've heard yourself you know 30 hours in practice where nobody heard you and your expectation you were you, you did something fine but you know you, you may think well i avoided this or like you know with a certain chord change or tonal center i avoided doing that because i'm not good at it good at it so i'm terrible it's like well that's not you know where all you know you know where all your shortcomings are. Well, I guess that's the thing. It's a continuum. That's, that's right. a beautiful thing about music is, well, you get to play it. You're going to wake up and there's the, your gig tomorrow. <laughs> you know, like just learning to let things go and, you know, yeah. you, get, you get to come back and recreate it or create it or, you know, whatever that process is, but no performance is the same. Even if you're playing a fixed piece, you play on Monday night, the Tuesday night performance is a totally, it's, it's all new again. That's so super true. And especially, you know, you know, like uh, great rock bands, it's like, you know, even when you catch them on a uh, night where they're not like super together, but it's still great. But you could say, well, like I was part of that experience instead of going, oh, they were just, you know, whatever. But whatever happens is part of the live experience, the living, breathing, the aesthetics, the, you know, the energy in the room. And, um, yeah, um, or the, I, the the night that it was so hot out that the guitars kept going out of tune or whatever. It's like, you know, I grew to start thinking of it as like I was part of that experience. And that's uh, that's what I think that's what all of us try to give in some right. way. Well, I mean, think about I mean, any of us here think about those performances that you were involved in that were, you know, magical. It wasn't just your experience. I no. think what you're saying is you know, when you're playing in a club, you feel the pe the people are a big part of it. The audience, I mean, it's the people on the stage, but you know, yes. you say that to an audience, like actually we feel you here and that's a big part of it. So when, I mean, I could think anybody here would think about that night where you played this and just, it was magical. It wasn't just you, it was that time when the audience was there and you could feel everyone breathe and just, you know, whatever that was, the stars were aligned, but it wasn't just your singular thing. It was. Right. What you were connected to a big fabric with that. 
Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I become, I don't know if it just happens with, with age, what, what you, any of you think, but uh, things become a little more, more and more conceptual for me. Um, and early on, it was like definitely, you know, knowing this or being able to play this tune in all 12 keys and, you know, stuff that, that, that is good to study and it is good to practice. But now it's kind of like you start asking yourself, it's like, you know, why did I know giant steps in my twenties in all 12 keys? Well, because if you didn't, you weren't cool. And I asked myself one day, do I want to play giant steps? No, I love Coltrane, but no. So I, I probably don't even remember the, I mean, I, I, I probably remember it, but I, if somebody called it on a gig, I'd throw a hail Mary, you know, <laughs> but you know, I'm, I wasn't going to let that be a measure of my worth what everybody else thinks I should do. So, um, but even that it's like, let's say, you know, let's say the opposite of what you're saying, Cheryl, it's like, you know, the, the nights where, you know, you kind of feel like I wasn't on my game or they called some tunes. I've kind of, uh, it was acceptable for public performance, but I feel like I fell on my face and um, well, I'm going to call that an experience, you know, instead of, I used to go home and really not sleep for nights and really the self-abuse as far as like the thoughts going, well, you should have known that tune. And I come, you know, from a generation that when you were younger, the generation or two above me were very presented themselves as always perfect. You know, if you, can't do something it's you and going back to like being so open to my students they're usually surprised to hear that i had similar struggles or i'll say you know why do you think i still practice all the time you know why why do you you know why do you think i do that because i can already do everything so i just think you know being very honest saying look this uh I hear you. This is a struggle and you're going to, you're going to do it. You're going to do it. Instead of, I used to practice 10 times more than you. If you're not practicing 10 hours, if you don't know these tunes, you're a nobody. If you're, you know, and all the should statements that came from the generations above mine, the people, uh, some of the people I studied with was a lot of should statements and that can affect the performance, right? You get on stage and that can be what I call an obstacle. I think we'd all, everybody would be amazing or, or their best self faster if they could remove the obstacles rather than try, just trying to gain licks and gain all this stuff. And um, yeah, so yeah, but the, the performance thing, I try to chalk them up as experiences. Um, not chalk them up. Uh, that's not, I shouldn't say that. I, I, I should try to see them as experiences rather than I mean, of course, self-critique, like, yeah, you know, my, this isn't, you know, I didn't feel like this part of my timing was that strong. Maybe I should look into that. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, I, and I appreciate the kind words, you know, I, um, I still run into the, you know, how, like, my peers are so great, you know, I'm so lucky to bump in. And then one day I had to say, well, yeah, but I, I, I'm doing me and, I bet you none of them can do me because they can't because they're not me uh, for whatever reason. And that's not a bad thing because they should be being them, which, you know, they are. That's what students should, you know, yeah, work hard on this stuff. You got to make it your own. And then you got to start trusting your ear. Going back to that, you've got to trust. It's got to be intentional. You can't just play anything and say, this is fine. Scott said you could just play. No, it, it's with intention. I would say like, 
when people say they're jamming and improvising or whatever, you're you're really not improvising unless you 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 have intention behind what you play, right? Like even if it's completely emotional, and, and it's, say it's sonic. If that was your intent, then then that's awesome. Not well, I'll play anything and and say I was trying to do something hip. So back to the whole intent thing. There are, you know, with philosophy, there there's a school called Epicureanism. Uh, and I find this interesting. I just thought I'd share this with you. Um, but it's a school of hedonism. And when we think of hedonism, we think of gluttony, right? So Epicurus said um, his main thing was the highest good is pleasure. So far, sounds like a hedonist. Um, or the absence of pain. But here's the catch. Let's say you're like, oh, I'm just, well, it's great. You know, I'm going to eat donuts all day, right? Um, yeah, that's a pleasure in the moment. But that's a pleasure that leads to a pain. So that's not good, they'll, they'll argue. Or, you know, it's kind of like, oh, I'm just going to, ha- you know, do all this, you know, I'm going to eat too much. I'm going to go out and drink too much because it's fun. Okay, that's a pleasure that leads to a pain. On the other hand, going to the gym, uh, you know, you're going to be sore. You don't want to go. It's something you absolutely don't want to do. But that's a pain that leads to a pleasure. So if we start, I, I kind of share that with my students. It's like, oh, my, my ear training, I just dread it. I go, it's a pain. But the pleasure part is you could be a little lazier, you know, because you could hear things pretty quick. Um. <laughs> that That's really great. Um, I think... Um it's really interesting because what you're really talking about is like how you best develop to serve the music, right? What you're serving the music, you're serving the, that moment. And, and to some extent, I think I really relate to everything you're saying about repertoire. You know, like I came through classical music and I loved the repertoire and I played tons of recitals and now I play mostly my own music and I don't have the interest to play a lot of those pieces, but it's not like I regret that I studied them. And I think there's so much value in everything I learned from that repertoire. And I think that's what you're saying too, like you're becoming yourself and you're taking from all of your influences, but you have to have the influences first. It's a mistake to say, well, I'm not going to study that because I don't think I'm going to use it. You have no idea how that's going to come through you when you're serving the music you're making. And I think, Right. So it's almost none of your business. Like it's going to come <laughs> the way it comes through, but you have to learn it first. And then the other thing about good nights and bad nights, I I really relate to that. Everything you and Cheryl are saying about that, like when we're playing, I feel like we're in a different role. You know, you're not really in the audience role anymore where you're just kind of going on that journey in a different way because we're the we're the player. It's the music's coming through us and how we feel about it almost doesn't relate to the experience that other people may have or the general experience in the room. And that's another way. It's none of our business. None of our business. I love how you put that. It's like, you know, it's like you're there to serve this role and serve the music and how you feel about it has no relationship to the way, what it does for other people or even from an objective level of how it sounds because everything you've put into your technique and your musicianship is going to come out it might not come out like it comes out in a range, right? But it's not going to come out terribly if, if you're practiced, right? And I, I found that. I found that some of the performances where I thought, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I played that. I'll listen back, and I can hear 
how the audience is. I can feel the vibe. Feel the room. And, and I was part of that. And, um, the fact that I discounted it, it bears no real relationship to that reality. And I think that's a funny thing to realize that everything you're putting in is going to come out and you have to be willing to be open to it and not judgmental of something that isn't yours really. I kind of really love what you said about, you know, how things come out and that being none of your business. Right. You know, um, you know, people say, well, like, who are your influences? Everyone. And that sounds like a cop out, but you don't want to hear the list. Honestly, it's like you, nobody wants to hear the list, you know, um, and then I'm going to leave pe very important people out. You know, I'm going to. And then, I, you know, I wrote this piece once called Influence Versus Imitation. And it was a distinction be between what you were saying, Kim, you know, OK, influence could be, you know, I'm going to sit down and transcribe a bunch of solos and um, we're going to learn them for, you know, technique purposes or rhythmic ideas or what, what or intervallic, whatever it is. Now, imitation would be if I just took a bunch of those licks and use, uh, uh, yeah, and use them. Influence would be it's coming out in the wash somewhere in where I play and I'm not quite sure where that is. I don't know where to point to. Well, where'd you get that rhythmic concept? I don't know. You know, I, or, you know, I worked on it or, you know, um, but, you know, that's a big distinction. Are you imitating someone, which, you know, is fine. You know, people make a great living off of that. And I've heard some people that do that and they sound amazing and I love hearing it. But for me, it's like, I feel like I'm lying to people personally. Um, that's what I had to admit to myself. It's like, well, the crowd wants to hear screaming guitars right now. And am I bold enough not to do that? Because tonight is going to be different. Well, like Cheryl said, you know, it's like tonight um, I'm going to do something completely different. And that's the kind of cool thing. Like, you know, and Cheryl, Cheryl knows, like, if you're lucky enough these days to get a residency, right, you play every Monday night somewhere. And that's the place where you, you, people want to show up every week because it's going to be like, well, what are they going to do tonight? Are they in a pissy mood and they're just going to play ballads? Or are they going to like, you know, I saw, I remember seeing Pat Metheny in the eighties when still life talking came out and he, he is always known for playing the new record. But the night I saw him in Lowell, he was playing pretty avant-garde stuff and he played one or two songs from that album and nobody believes me, but back to experience, whatever happened that day, Pat said, we're doing these two and the rest is going to be, you know, whatever. And, um, I, that gig stuck with me. And how many years ago was that, you know, where that album came out, it was kind of like, yeah, yeah. He just showed up and said this tonight, this is what's, this is what's going to be experienced. And that's great. You know, I think some people were mad. They wanted to hear the new record, but you know, the courage that that takes um, for him to do that or other artists, but residencies, you know, Cheryl, did you, I mean, you, you, you must've had some in your time where you can, kind of choose what you do each Monday night, for example. Did you did you feel that way? But, you know, it's kind of like tonight I'm going to do something totally not like last week or. Well, yeah, I mean, we my trio had a long residency at the 55 bar and we still now that things are back are going to be back there. But, yeah, that was I mean, that experience over 20 years, actually. Oh, my God. Uh, is on touchable in terms of 
the development of the band. I mean, when you hear that band, it's a band. No mistaking. It's a different experience. And but you know, yeah, the whole thing. Th those are those are treasures in our career that if we can develop those or cultivate those um types of residencies, because that's where you really that's where it happens, you know, that's where it comes together. Yeah, and the band part's important, you know. I always say um it's not about having the best players in the world, so to speak. If that were true, Brazil would win every soccer or football tournament wouldn't they because they have the best players in the world but they don't necessarily work great together you know they go to take a band like you too those early early records sound amazing and people are like well that drummer can't play that bass player can't play oh god yes they can you hear the you hear that that's a band those people spend like 10 hours a day together and um and i like what you said about the red the residency it's like over time, it develops. You start to develop a time thing together or a, a, an unspoken language, which really music, we all know music is a language. Um, and uh, it, I, I know I do a lot of like side steps here, but like um, the definition of being a music is somebody that could speak the language of music, meaning, you know, it's cool to play, you know, cowboy chords or whatever. It's uh, that stuff's great, but you know, if you step on a stage, your ears should be as good as they could be. Um, your time should be really good. You know, you have to be receptive to the sounds on stage and be able to answer them. And that's, you know, I, I work on my ears and my time a lot. And I just, you know, uh, I feel they're they're lacking. Of course, I, I could do it professionally, but, um, you know, sometimes it's humbling. I'll play with, you know, some horn players that have ears like i can't believe i'm like yeah that's yeah i'm gonna go check that out i'm gonna go do this more so i think yeah speaking the language of music is you have to learn it and that's what we do at berkeley ear training i, I always you'll hear me say in the office when like you know some of the work study students are like i got ear training and I, i'll go best class you're gonna take boom and i i say that because then they're like well why would he say that because i learned the hard way i ignored my ear training and then i got on stage this is a funny story. I have a lot of funny stories about uh, falling on my face. I was like 21, just got out of college. You know, I had my licks and stuff and I'll never forget. I was playing this pickup gig. There's older people and the sax player goes, you know, okay, let's do somewhere over the rainbow. And I said, ah, oh, are the chords to that. Okay. I think it's this, I think it's, and then he's like adjusting, you know, his horn and he goes, uh, you play the melody. I go, I don't know the melody. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, uh, I don't know that I've never played the melody. And he he kind of looked inside. I'm like, what is this guy's problem? And then he goes, well, just play it. And I was floundering through the scale, not even close. You know what my problem was? I didn't do ear training. <laughs> so I went home. I took out sight singing and complete that they had in school. And I started doing from page one on. And I did that more than, you know, practice other stuff because I was so embarrassed. And I don't want students to, you know, we, we all learn the hard way in some things, but I try to say, look, do it now. You're going to be so grateful that you can hear what key this song starts in. Cause sometimes people don't talk to you on gigs. Sometimes they're rude. Sometimes they're the more self, you know, the more tools you have to be, you know, uh, your self um, independent on stage, it'll protect you from that, but it's also a more pleasurable um, 
experience with other musicians. Absolutely. Like, you know, Kim, you do the thing with, you know, Dave Tronzo mm -hmm. and, um, and I, 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 it was like nothing I heard when I heard you do it. Um, I think it was at the, the faculty night, one of the faculty nights in the packs. And there's gotta be, you guys have to be at a certain degree of musicianship mm -hmm. for a moment to happen there. Right. Everything's with great intent. It's not two people just going up and playing stuff. So that was kind of exciting the first time I heard it, you know, sonically. Mm -hmm. And I had an experience hearing that. And it's kind of like, well, and not only that, it's a non-traditional pairing of instruments. Or, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah, good. And I think I think a lot of students might see that and go, oh, well, why can't I do that? I'm going to get this instrument to play with my instrument. And, you know, I think, you know, by example, I think, you know, when you do that with Dave or when the time I played with you and you said you played one of your own pieces mm -hmm. and I was like, this is so inspiring to, to classical players. They're seeing somebody that's playing with great classical technique, but has composed something. I think we see in classical music. Um, I don't, I don't want to speak for in front of an expert like you about it, but I see, you know, eventually just came, you know, there was the composer and the performer. And, you know, if you play a classical instrument, you play repertoire. And I think what you're doing is you're showing people that, no, I, you can write too. Watch, I did, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. But, yeah. I, I think both of those times that you mentioned, like me playing with David Tronzo and, and the time that you and I played together for the students coming yes. in are examples of everything you've talked about. Because um, David and I started as a lesson swap because we were so different from one another. Um, when we met, he suggested this. He said, well, I wonder what we could teach each other because we're so different. And then that right. lesson swap, we'd never stopped meeting. We've met for eight years now, um, years. every week for about four hours a week. And um and we, and so our duo, we didn't want to be a thing where it's like you play your style and I'll paint mine on top or vice versa. We wanted to learn from each other. So that means by definition, you have to find all your commonality, which is our common musical language, as you've been talking about all the stuff on the fretboard, what we care about rhythmically. And then you have to come out of your comfort zone to learn from the other person so that, yes. you know, so then what we create is really just by definition different because we're bringing ourselves to it. It's really like you're hearing the two of us. And, and when we teach it, which we get to do together now, um, we're trying to help other people become themselves. Like we don't want them to copy us. We want them to have that experience that we're having. And we're very open about, listen, this is, um, it's sometimes really scary. Um, and it's sometimes like really hard, but it's so worth it because you know we're finding the sounds we really really want to make and drawing on all the things and sharing those with each other and i felt like we did that you and i got to do that together when we met the new students coming in side by side yeah you could say I like know. this is berkeley but also this is berkeley you know and like so you create your experience and then hopefully you take that into the world and it is creative and it is expressive and it's also hard and you have to draw on all of these different influences and deepen your knowledge of what you're doing so that because if what you have is yourself then you have to work on yourself in so many different ways and i think through this whole hour you keep circling around like well it's this but it's also this and it's also this and you're showing everyone like 
you know, you're building your methodology basically for now, how are you going to integrate all of your influences and your knowledge and, and try things out and be open to the idea that, well, you're going to try it this way for a while and then you might shift. You know? Yeah, you have to. Yeah, you have to be. I, I, what I'm hearing you say is like, you know, you had to be open to failing. You know, and I think you know, um, I'm always curious, and I never asked you, but this would be a great forum to ask this question. The first time you and Tronzo performed, were each of you a little nervous, or were you excited, or both? Like, well, is this going to be accepted? Is this going to be accepted? Are people going to, you know? Uh, say this doesn't belong or, you know, are these people going to put it down because of X, Y, and Z? Because it, it it was something that you weren't copying something that was done. It's not like you went out and, and played uh, um, a John Williams arrangement of something. Right. So, yeah. So for you, was it, was it nerve wracking? Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you said that because there were two first times really that we played in front of people. One was um, Garrison's Memorial concert was the first time we performed so for people who are listening garrison fuel was a wonderful professor here and he passed away while he was in a semester of teaching and we all loved him and we wanted to do a memorial concert and garrison was a practicing buddhist and that was very important to him and i had a melody and a, an arrangement of that melody that a guitarist i love had done for me and so David and I sat down, we were like, we're going to give this a couple hours and see if we can arrange it in a way that's meaningful to play for Garrison. And we did. And, um, and we, it was a really beautiful moment. And so then after that, um, in January, we have a, um, a concert where all the faculty play for only each other, right? At the BTOT at the, it's called the guitar department soiree. So we thought, okay, now we're going to play a piece that we composed, not the arrangement we played for Garrison. We're going to play a piece that we composed. And to your point about whether or not it'll be accepted, um, I had played with another faculty member and then David came up and joined me. And he said, um, Kim and I are going to play a piece of music that we wrote together for our duo. And one of our colleagues in the just, just spontaneously yelled out, really? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, great. And it, yeah, because it, it did, it was odd. And, and I think that said a lot about the fact that he and I had established musical personalities, right? And you have your personality and, and people might not think it'll match, but I love that. I love unconventional musical relationships because it's like, well, what will you find? With I know. And in some ways, all musical relationships are unconventional because when you dig deep, you find all kinds of things like, that people might not see on the surface. And if you have the courage to go into them, it's great. It's been the best thing that's happened to me because it's also helped me open up to everybody's music. And from where I sit, I get to spend time around you, but like having to explore things that I don't know that are now incredibly valuable, that have become my core by working with one other colleague of ours, helps me really see and recognize all the things that everyone is doing. And so now I'm more apt to like, just, you know, walk up to someone's classroom and say, what do you think about this? Or I heard you do this or, you know, um, and it's helping me grow in a, in a way that, um, in a way that's more, even more open than I think I came here with, if that makes sense. It makes total sense. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. to me. Yeah. yeah. That's, but that's fascinating. Um, it's kind of like, um, 
you know, there's a, a lot of artists, I love how they play, but I, I really appreciate their willingness to do different things. Like one of, one of my favorite players is probably Bill Frizzell. Um, such as he's a very sweet person. Like I, when I did the Pascara jazz festival a few years ago, he was doing it too. And, um, you know, his show, I almost was in tears how beautiful it was, you know, in Italy outside, you know, and I got to talk to him a bit, but, you know, I, if I had time to sit down with him, I would just love to go like, you know, you'll just do anything and you make it work. And you, I just want to say like, is it that you just don't care? It's just like, now I'm going to, and you, and I've seen him plenty of times and it's not going to be the same. I saw him do a whole solo show one night. He had a few guitars out. He only played an acoustic and it's just kind of like, you know, um, the inspiration, I don't get inspired. Oh, I don't, uh, I do get inspired by his playing, but I get inspired by his concept of why not? Why not? And, you know, if you do it with intention. So I think there's, there's a new level of being influenced and it's, it's his process or it's his, it's him as an artist. Of course, he's a mind-blowingly tasteful player. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying that. But instead of like sitting down and learning his solos like I would in my 20s, I go, I enjoy the music. And then I always go up to him after and I just, you know, you know, great show tonight. Like this, you know, so it was totally different. You know, you know, you don't know what you're going to get. So as an artist, I really appreciate that. You know, and he's always I think he's always been like that. You know, you always hear him in the 80s. He was playing some really you know, crazy sounding guitar sonically stuff, which must have taken a lot of courage. So one day I, I want to ask him, was like, was this courage or was this just you not caring and going, I don't know, I'm going to do this now. Cause for me, it's courage. You know, it's gaining the courage to change what I'm doing up. I agree with that. I, I agree with, about Bill Frizzell too, because I think he has that quality of intent that you're talking about. And to me, I, I, I'm a true believer in that. Music can be as unfamiliar as you want it to be. It can be completely unfamiliar to an audience. And if you do it with honesty and intent, people will come with you. People will come with you on that. And I've seen that time and time again. I've seen it in the duo that I play with. I've seen it in just new music. I've seen it in every project. Like I've heard, you know, Cheryl, when you've done different, different groups, different duos, different quartets and trios, um, I feel like, if the intent is real, like there's a communicable intent and you're not trying to shock people and you're not trying to do something just for the sake of doing something weird and different, if you're doing it with honesty, it will work. And, um, and, and if you've done your homework, you know, um, if you've done your homework and you, and you have good intent, I've had a lot of people say to me, like, I don't know what that is, but I like it. Or, you know, um, when I hear that, all I can do is receive it, you know, and that's good. Um, I think. And what you're saying is, yeah, that it's spot on. And I say to my students or, or, or to colleagues, sometimes they'll say, you know, uh, so you need to tighten up this up or doing that. Oh, yeah. But the common person won't know. I say, yes, they will. Mm -hmm. Yes, they will. If you have somebody that's grown up on rock and roll and they don't play an instrument, you know, nothing about music and they go to a rock show, they'll be able to tell you if the band was rocking or not. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. They might not they might not be able to say, well, you know, the, the kick drum was placed with the bass here, like the way that a musician would say, but they know, you know, or else they wouldn't buy a ticket or else they wouldn't, you know, they don't underestimate a sensitive layman or not even sensitive. If 
they were grown grown up on classical music, um, they'll be able to distinguish the performances of a piece. Okay. And they they might not be able to speak intelligently about it, like, you know, have a conversation. They could go, I really like this recording, you know, and that it stops there. They know, you know, I really think everybody knows or else we just be like playing for each other all the time only. That's right. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, Ian, obviously we could go on for like a year with this conversation, but I'm wondering as the coffee kind of comes to an end today, like what's on your mind? Um, as you've been listening to this, what do you want to bring up? Well, I mean, that point that you were just making that they would know. I mean, here's like, I want to connect that to something that you said earlier about how like the way you said that everybody's self-taught, but also the implication is that kind of nobody's self-taught, right? That like it, when you were talking about influences and you were talking about like hearing something and you're playing and thinking, I wonder where that came from. And it came from somewhere, right? Something that you heard, something that you worked on and you forgot you learned it or whatever. And there's all of this wealth of knowledge that's actually sitting there kind of in your, I don't want to say subconscious, but I mean, it's like a lot of people are sitting on this base of knowledge and understanding of music and maybe they don't have the, um, you know, vocabulary or uh, self-awareness to know where it's coming from. And I loved when earlier you were talking about the ILRE 375 class that's required for performance majors that you teach. And that you were talking about like, here are some ways to think about what you're seeing in a performance, what you're hearing, what somebody's doing in a way that's actually critical, right? Like critically listening and critically experiencing a performance um, I really, I don't know. I love that. And I, and I, and I think that, you know, experiencing a musical performance on that next level where you're really thinking what's going on. I mean, you just mentioned, you know, the bass drum being near this thing and like, how do these little, uh, uh, you know, these factors play into a better performance. And I think that that's so critical for people to know as performers themselves when they see something and they know what's working or what's not working, you know? So I just, I don't know. I love that. But here's one last question um, that we ask everybody. Sorry. I just, I just really <laughs> dug what you were talking about earlier, but um, here's one last question um, that we ask everybody in this um, podcast, which is what's something that, students should be thinking about i know this is a should statement i don't, <laughs> I don't. Teacher. but what's something that students should be thinking about that um they might not have on their radar like a question they maybe should ask but might not think to ask oh boy um there's so many but um What's something, well, you're, you're, you're kind of saying like, what's the knowledge to, that I would ask them at the time? Like, you know, an incoming, that's an 18 year old. Um, mm. <laughs> you, you got me stumped for a second. I guess, you know, um, the advice or, or the, the, the question uh, would kind of be like, uh, how do I put this? Well, <laughs> saying like keep an open mind is pretty cliche um but i would just say basically i put it in this 
you know, really need to work hard while you're here. But you also have to trust yourself enough to take what you've learned. And, you know, this is it's early in the day for you. Don't get too frustrated. You know, uh, in 30 years, you're still going to be fighting with whatever it is on the fretboard or whatever. Um, you know, realize it's today. And this is where you are right now at this moment. Doesn't mean you can't be somewhere else in a week or a month or then, you know. So that's the big thing is I think if somebody thinks about that from the beginning, there's going to be less obstacles they're going to put up, you know, like self-doubt obstacles. So it's kind of like in the now, you know, um, and shorthand, keep an open mind. But we've talked about that a, a lot in this. So I think, I think a conceptual thing, it's not like an album to check out. It's not, you should know the scale that, that you're already here for that. Um, I guess, trust yourself, which can be very difficult for a lot of us. Cheryl, what's your closing thought on this hang? I don't know. I mean, Scott, you just, you were blazing with so many inspiring things. I'm going to have to take this one and listen to it many times. And I wrote down many um, things that I'm going to look into. Epicurious. <laughs> so the, that, a lot of that doesn't exist. It's on Cicero's On Moral Ends. And okay. Because I read a lot about ethics now. So what it is, is Torquatus is the one speaking for Epicurus. It's it's book one and two. So he speaks about it and then Cicero rebuts it. And then the Stoics are the next chapter and Cicero rebuts that. So that's why I learned about the school. And it's, it's fascinating because it's about, you know, ethics and the morals. And this is not moral or you don't have morals because you don't go by the, the virtues or whatever. So it's, it's interesting. But I think uh, the hedonism thing really makes sense because it's like yeah i could go drink 10 cups of coffee for no reason but that's tastes good but i'm going to be sick later so that's you know what i mean so that's like a pleasure that leads to a pain and you'd be surprised how many times we all do that to ourselves during the day you know you know or you know god i really don't want to practice but you know that that's a pleasure i'm going to go eat ice cream instead but the pain is you show up to the gig and you're kind of like eh so hedonism is not what I thought it was. <laughs> Scott, there's so many things that everybody can get into. And, and hopefully if everyone just remembers this balance that you're talking about, taking in, like just being grateful for all of the things you're learning at Berkeley, whether or not you know that they're important, just trust that they're important and work really hard and trust yourself. I mean, what better start? can we give people, especially in the midterm when everyone's second guessing everything. So thank you so much for being with us. Um, thank you. Thank you, Cheryl Bailey. Um, and thank you, Ian Steed. And we'll be with you next time on the next Coffee Talk.